Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Unless You Eat. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 15th, 2021. We're still talking about bread, which means we're still talking about a God who longs to nourish us. For the past three weeks, I've written about what's at stake for us in Jesus' requirement that we eat his flesh. I've written about the significance of gathering around God's abundant table. I've explored the deep hungers only God can satisfy. And I've considered what it means to carry divine bread on life's precarious journeys. This week, I'm thinking about Jesus' invitation from the opposite side. That is, what is at stake for God in this invitation? If Jesus is the bread of life, what is it like for him to feed us? How does a feeding, nourishing God experience our consumption? What does Jesus feel when we refuse his sustenance? Obviously, we can't know for sure. Our experience is not God's. But I believe we can imagine, based on the witness of Scripture and on the analogies and metaphors we find in our own lives. For me personally, the analogy that comes closest is motherhood. My two children are young adults now. But over the past 20 plus years, I've had a lot of time to reflect on my role as a feeder, nourisher, and sustainer of two human beings whose lives are intricately connected to my own. I've learned about the joys, the surprises, the fears, the frustrations, and the sorrows that come with becoming one who feeds. And I can't help but wonder if my experiences mirror something of God's. After all, both the Bible and Christian history are full of maternal images for God. In the book of Isaiah, God describes herself in childbirth. I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And again, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. The psalmist writes, Out of my womb before the morning star I bore you. In the Gospels, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, describing himself as a mother hen who longs to gather her unwilling chicks under her wings. St. Augustine writes, When all is well with me, what am I but an infant suckling your milk and feeding on you? Ephraim of Syria writes, He has given suck, life to the universe. Teresa of Avila exclaims, O life of my life, sustenance that sustains me. For from those divine breasts where it seems God is always sustaining the soul, there flows streams of milk bringing comfort to all the people. So we have the witness of scripture and tradition, but what does it mean? What can we learn about God's heart, God's character, God's desire by contemplating motherhood? I want to share two possibilities, each grounded in my own life experience. Two stories then, one marked by surprise and wonder, the other steeped in shadow. Growing up, I didn't see many women nursing their babies. So when my daughter was born, I knew that I wanted to breastfeed her, But that was all I knew. I had no idea how to begin. I didn't have a clue as to what the commitment would entail in terms of time, skill, sleeplessness, or pain. It didn't cross my mind that my newborn would be as clumsy and self-defeating as I initially was, having no idea how to latch on, how to suck efficiently, how to keep her own flailing fists out of the way, how to keep from choking when the milk let down. In other words, our initiation into nursing was rough. The natural business of mother-feeding child didn't come naturally. It took practice, patience, tears, my daughter's and mine, and help. 
For the first several weeks, I had a lactation consultant on call 24-7. During some feeding sessions, it took her, my husband, and my mom all holding, positioning, coaxing, and comforting my baby simultaneously to get the job done. I thought about giving up several times. But then, then we learned. We bonded, we developed a rhythm. We nested into each other, my daughter eagerly drawing the essentials of nutrition, warmth, affection, and protection from my body, and I, in turn, aching with tenderness, urgency, full breasts, and wild love, sharing my whole self with a little person cocooned in my arms. Between my two children, I spent about four years of my life breastfeeding. In that time, I discovered the joy and wonder that comes with feeding so intimately. I realized with a kind of sacred bewilderment that I could sustain a human life with my own body. I glowed with pride and satisfaction when my baby's cheeks filled out and their limbs grew strong and their eyes sparkled and their bellies swelled with my milk. In the early weeks when they had to nurse around the clock, I dreaded being away from them even for an hour. I worried about something terrible happening to me before they were weaned. My body grew so attuned to their needs that my milk let down at the first hint of their cries. I learned what it is to give myself away, to delight in a fullness other than my own, to be nourished by the act of nourishing, to become food. Again, the analogy isn't perfect, but I wonder if Jesus' desire to feed us, to be our bread, to give us his own flesh as perfect nourishment, is anything like the desire that overwhelmed me as a young mother when I held my infants in my arms. I wonder if he is patient when we fumble and thrilled when we latch on. I wonder if he worries over our hunger and delights in our fullness. I wonder if he takes pride in our growth and maturing. I wonder if he experiences pure joy each time we lean, lean in and eat what he offers us. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them, he says in our gospel reading this week. I wonder what profound pleasure God takes in this intimate, bodily abiding. A second story, a harder one. When my daughter was 12 years old, she slowly stopped eating. The descent was gradual, first no desserts or sweets, then no carbs, then no between-meal snacks, then no meat, eventually no meals at all, just pitiful little bites scattered and useless, a single grape, one carrot stick, a tablespoon of plain yogurt or iceberg lettuce, barely enough to sustain life. Wrecked by anxiety, perfectionism, and American culture's toxic, toxic obsession with thinness, our daughter had developed anorexia nervosa, one of the deadliest of all mental illnesses. Within a matter of months, our family dining table became a battlefield. Grocery shopping became an exercise in desperation and agony. All attempts at persuasion failed, and my husband and I faced the real prospect that our child might starve herself to death in the name of what her illness insisted was health. There are no words to express what I felt as a mother as I watched my child waste away. All I wanted in the universe was to feed her, to cook anything she'd eat, to place warm and nourishing plates of food in front of her and coax her, even if it took hours, to take those essential nutrients into her weakened body. When she kept refusing, my heart broke, hardened, and broke again, too many times to count. I panicked, I seethed, I grieved, I begged. I experienced a kind of powerlessness I hope never to experience again. I was her mother, the one who was supposed to nurture, nourish, feed, protect, and sustain my children. What was this monstrous sickness that made basic, 
elemental feeding impossible. All these years later, my daughter is no longer as sick as she once was. She's so much better. But eating disorders cast long shadows, and she still struggles to eat enough. She might struggle all her life, which means I might too. Bearing witness, trying to help, hoping, fearing, praying. In our lectionary this week, Jesus doesn't mince words. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he says, you have no life in you. I know that his words sound harsh and unforgiving, but I wonder if we might hear them as the desperate words of a parent who knows exactly what makes for life and what makes for death, and longs to spare his children the latter. I wonder if Jesus sounds the alarm so urgently because he knows how much and how badly we need the nourishing, life-sustaining food he alone can provide. I wonder if he too grieves and weeps, seeds and pleads, fears and hopes when we walk away from his table, refuse his bread, and say no to his outstretched hands. I wonder how he sits with his own vulnerability, his own powerlessness, the terrible cost of the freedom he's given us to starve ourselves if we so choose. I wonder how our mother God yearns to gather us around her table, coax the bread of life into our mouth, and watch us once again thrive and flourish under her care. Whoever eats me will live because of me, Jesus says. He is our bread. He is our bread. He is our bread. Our lectionary asks us to linger over this truth for a reason. This teaching is elemental. It is rock bottom. It is the core of who God is and who we are. May we ever eat and live. For books this week, Dan reviews The Story of Earth, The First 4.5 Billion Years from Stardust to Living Planet by Robert M. Hazen. In 2021, data from NASA's New Horizons space probe suggested that the universe contains about 200 billion galaxies. The smallish Milky Way galaxy contains 100 to 400 billion stars, and at least that many planets. Our relatively young Earth, formed 4.5 billion years ago in sudden episodes of unfathomable violence, is thus barely a blink in the eye, barely a blink in the time and space of a 13.7 billion year cosmic drama. In many ways, the Earth is utterly unremarkable. It's a drama that has been repeated countless trillions of times throughout the history of the universe. And yet, as Robert Hazen affirms in his brain-exploding book, the Earth is truly precious and special. There's nothing else like it that we know of. Earth is the only known planet with oceans of water, with an atmosphere rich in oxygen, with life. Only Earth became alive. It is the only one of its kind in the solar system, if not the entire cosmos. And this tiny blue dot in the black void of space gave rise to sentient human beings who can unravel and understand these marvelous mysteries. For 99.99% of the Earth's history, humanity did not exist. Human evolution is small beer compared to cosmic evolution. And that's the overriding theme of Hazen's biography of our Earth, 4.5 billion years of inexorable and radical change from a planet with no water or oxygen to one that now has a perfect balance of both. Massive plate tectonics, the continents are moving. From a dozen minerals in the original dust and gas of our solar system to over 4,500 known mineral species on Earth today. From core to crust, writes Hazen, the Earth is incessantly mutable. There is beauty and symmetry in all this, like the nine planets orbiting our Earth in the same plane. But there are also crazy anomalies, 
like Venus rotating backward compared to the other planets, or Neptune's moon, Triton, orbiting the Earth in the opposite direction of the rest of the planets. Hazen writes with an infectious enthusiasm for her subject matter. His book is an example of popular science written at the highest level. The science will be heavy sledding for readers like me, but he includes numerous anecdotes throughout the book that humanize his story, like when he bought media rights in Morocco on the black market, or how as a senior in college he was one of the first humans to touch the moon when he helped examine the 45 pounds of rocks that Apollo 11 brought back from the lunar surface. A major takeaway from the book is what Hazen calls the sociology of science, that is, the very human way that science is actually done, the many things we don't know, the guesswork and speculation that lead to bitter controversies and debates, the alternate claims and counter-arguments, the orthodox paradigms that are replaced by former heresies, and the occasional vanity, egoism, and careerism of a few, but sometimes very important, scientists. Robert Hazen, a mineralogist and astrobiologist, is a Clarence Robinson Professor of Earth Science at George Mason University and a senior scientist at the Carnegie Institution's Geophysical Laboratory. For more on this subject, see my review of Michael Benson, Far Out, A Space-Time Chronicle, published in New York, Abrams, 2009, 328 pages. For films this week, Dan reviews Nomadland. Nomadland became the breakout favorite film of the year as soon as it debuted at the Venice Film Festival in September of 2020. Professional critics and everyday fans have heaped praise upon the neo-Western drama that was written, edited, and directed by Chloe Zhao. It earned six nominations at the 93rd Academy Awards. The movie stars the quirky Frances McDormand as a woman named Fern, along with several real-life nomads, and is based upon a 2017 book by Jessica Bruder called Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. The story begins in 2011 when Fern loses her job in Nevada when a gypsum plant closes. The company's town zip code was even discontinued. Her husband dies, and so Fern becomes a nomad, a vehicle dweller who travels the country doing seasonal labor, i.e. at an Amazon fulfillment center, Badlands National Park, and Waldrug in South Dakota. She connects with other nomads who form a sort of itinerant community. My wife and I were less impressed. For us, the film was cliched, sanitized, and even romanticized. There are obligatory scenes, for example, of cars breaking down, campfires and sunsets, the laundry mat, therapeutic bromides, classical music, and romantic subplot. It is suggested that Fern is not a victim at all, but a strong woman of agency who has chosen the road less traveled. I suspect that the reality of living the life of a nomad is much more interesting and complicated. And finally, for poetry this week, John Berryman's Addressed the Lord, One. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake, inimitable contriver, endower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon, thank you for such as it is my gift. I have made up a morning prayer to you containing with precision everything that most matters. According to thy will, the thing begins. It took me off and on two days. It does not aim at eloquence. You have come to my rescue again and again in my impassable, sometimes despairing years. You have allowed my brilliant friends to destroy themselves, and I am still here, severely damaged but functioning. Unknowable, as I am unknown to my guinea pigs, how can I love you? I only, as far as gratitude and awe, confidently and absolutely go. 
I have no idea whether we live again. It doesn't seem likely from either the scientific or the philosophical point of view, but certainly all things are possible to you, and I believe as fixedly in the resurrection appearances to Peter and to Paul as I believe I sit in this blue chair. Only that may have been a special case to establish their initiatory faith. Whatever your end may be, accept my amazement. May I stand until death forever at attention for any your least instruction or enlightenment. I even feel sure you will assist me again, master of insight and beauty. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 15th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.